Namaste. So last week we have initiated a, uh, she has initiated a series of talks on Shurabindu's writings. Sri Ramakrishna at one place uh, very beautifully remarked that there is hope for two kinds of people. Not exact words but the sense. One is the person who has read a lot of Shastras, the Pandit. And yet he finds it inadequate. And the second is the unlettered peasant who has read nothing. But you know he is seeking for something which is greater than what we can find. So with Sri also it is so true because the knowledge that he brings to us is truly infinite. And it is not just infinite. Infinite is... Um, uh, you know, sometimes difficult to comprehend. It's very plastic, supple. It needs a brain which is supple. We want knowledge in fixed formats, bits, chunks of information. For instance, if we read uh, the synthesis of yoga, which of course is a later writing, uh, people are looking for a yoga practice, a yoga practice. <laughs> but Shirobindo clarifies yoga is practical psychology. Whole field of life is yoga. Yoga is not something which has to be done separately as an exclusive uh, from life. Yes, of course, one can uh, practice meditation or certain practices separately if one feels inclined to. But yoga, including meditation, whole life, every activity can be done in that state. That's the ideal that Shurabindra and the mother proposes before us. In one of the places, the mother was asked, that uh, what about uh, she, she actually remarked that one may practice uh, Raj Yoga and uh, meditation and yet may not be spiritual at all so people are very surprised now she has given a truth which is far too profound she was asked uh, but um, is not some kind of discipline necessary she said well that may be but a discipline for the sake of discipline has no meaning so if we read through Shurabindu, we will see he picks out the essence, what really worked. He is not the outer practice, but the inner flame. If the flame is there, then it takes us through everything. And if the flame is not there, we may practice meditation to our stiff bolt, as if we are paying a debt to God. So the same thing we see with Shurabindu's writings, that a person who is just playing in the world of ideas and want to see how many ideas match and mix with Shurabindu. A lot of people do that. And sometimes we pick up very selective quotes from here and there, which is of course dangerous. And uh, it becomes difficult to understand Shubhinda because we already have a whole, um, just like a newspaper, our brain, if somebody could scan it, <laughs> all kinds of information plugged in together, little bit of uh, Vedanta reading, some class here, some bit of uh, understanding, reading, all this and... It has created a khichdi and then we try to understand. So that's why one of the important conditions that the mother says before we can, uh, you know, really initiate ourselves into reading Shurabindo is to practice quietude. And there's a very beautiful story, a Zen story, that a person went to a master, a professor. He went to a master seeking for knowledge. So the master said, okay, bring me a Bring him some tea. So the disciple brought some cup and started pouring tea. And the professor is eager. I want to know. Let us have a discussion and debate. So meanwhile the disciple is pouring tea and pouring tea and pouring tea and the tea is spilling and he continues to pour and the tea spills further on the tablecloth. Now disciple obeying master is told pour the tea and not to stop. So suddenly... The professor says, Sir, but the cup is full. And the master says, Just like you, empty the cup if you want to receive knowledge. Remember, I think yesterday we were speaking about Hippocrates' story. One of the five main oracles of Delphi was, one of them was the wisest man in Greece is Socrates. And when Socrates came to know, he was very surprised. He said, but I don't know anything. How am I the wisest man? But... Delphi cannot be wrong. So she, he goes around asking people, what do you know? And everybody had something called knowledge and knowledge. But at the end, they stopped at a certain question. They got irritated because the last, there were, there were questions which were unanswered. 
and then he comes back and says now i know why i am the wisest man nobody seems to know but i know this much that i do not know so when we approach shurabindo there should be total humility we don't know we are standing before um, a galaxy where <laughs> light is pouring down and down and down even in his early writings so today when we take up this volume and that's why when we read shurabindo there should be a certain degree of quietude receptivity which comes through humility and the idea that we want some new ideas fresh ideas from shubhendu and there are plenty of it but if we want to compare it we have a lot of shlokas going on in the head and what is written here and what we have picked up then it's very difficult to navigate through one can by the grace everything is possible but it's very difficult to navigate through that so the first volume is basically titled as early cultural writings uh, the editors have done it shubhendu never gave that title and we do not know why they have really used the word early and cultural culture in shurbindo's view he differentiates between custom civilization and culture so custom is tradition mass of habits you know like today uh, people feel inclined to do ganpati puja and you know today they will send all photographs and images and even people have made ganeshji sit into mother's lap i mean when i saw that picture my first response was but the whole universe is in a lap <laughs> what is there about <laughs> can't we see that everything is in a heart so this is custom it doesn't uh, take us much farther it it's it's very often it becomes a even a trap we get bound we think that because we have done this morning puja with a little bit of ghanti we have pleased ganesh for all we know he must be feeling horrified because he is a living being that kya kar rahe mere sath what are they doing with me making me sit in a place and doing all these things and obnoxious agarbatti <laughs> and with this kind of loud music but he is poor you know after all he is a loving very cute uh, god and he he is tied by the bhaktas all the gods so this but this is custom many things wear a bangle put a manka tikka wear a dress like these are all customs there value is to preserve a certain order of civilization that's all but when the time changes most of the customs are contextual and they lose their value over a period of time some have their value but so that's not culture then comes civilization civilization is where people apply their intelligence buddhi reasoning and they decide there is a certain kind of um, way of you know like who is a civilized man today you'll see that somebody who dresses well talks to you nicely hello mr swain so how are you doing so if somebody comes and says ha ah, kya hai so you don't say ki is civilized he is ill mannered so generally we understand by civilization someone who is well mannered well brought up who knows the basic values that when you meet a person it's all civilization you may be carrying poison in the heart but when you meet a meet a person you say namaste ji atithi devo bhava but your heart is saying kab jaoge so but outwardly you know because it's it's civilization so civilization is developed around these things where there are certain uh, rational by reason by the use of intelligent will we have arrived at certain kind of common ways of life common decorum even there is a kind of morality uh, which is largely customary which is um, mainly based by social society's framework and it develops around again this idea that the society should not degenerate so civilization belongs to an the mind with the development of mind civilization develops before the mind there is only custom that's how it is but even civilization is not culture shobindo makes a distinction between the cultured man and the philistine and the civilized man is the philistine he is he is he is not the man to be adored and adorned because this person has no real um, value of things so he has picked up from here and there and made a potpourri of information he even has some customary ideas and based on that he uh, he can even partly debate discuss he takes active part in see all these activists you will see that you know they have read a few books from here and there but true culture begins when the mind begins to soar beyond and for itself think and decide it begins to 
understand the deeper reality behind things. The moment this starts, then truly culture begins. So culture is the finest flowering of the spirit in a race. And um, it is something which uh, belongs to the soul. So we can take it like this, that custom belongs to the outer being, civilization belongs to the mind, and culture belongs to the soul. And normally, but we associate culture with um, a set of things, and maybe because of that, um, this is named as cultural writings, because uh, Shubhendra wrote about art, literature, poetry, music, drama, Many such things. It's an assortment. It's like a, you know you go to a place and you have lovely mixed fruits given in a basket. So this is how it, these this set of writings are. Uh, many people have bypassed it, but it is I feel one of the most indispensable writings. Uh, partly because it shows how things have developed, and also because um, you know we get into the mind. Of the infinite. If you suddenly read the life divine, unless one is prepared and there is a special grace, sometimes we carry from either a previous life or, or then people are often lost. But when you read this, Shobindu is taking us from the near to the far. We understand some of these things, thoughts, concepts, though even here, the takeoff point is very high. It's like a flight which is taking off from the highest airport in the world. Take for example, there are nine parts of this book. And as I said early, I don't know on what basis because the writing span from 1890 when he is in England to 2010, mainly Chandranagar and some of them even when he has gone to Pondicherry. And also 1910 and even beyond. And apart from that, another aspect of, uh, you know, this aspect of culture is one should not think that uh, this exhausts all that Shurabindu has said on aspects of culture. Not at all. So one has to read Shurabindu in totality to get a drift. Otherwise, it's so easy to misquote by reading a passage from here and a passage from there. So frankly speaking, if one has to really... Uh, train oneself to understand Shurabindu, it's best to either read everything that he has said on a subject and that was the reason why mother had started All India Magazine. So that you take up a subject and you touch it from different standpoints. But yet, very often we can see some seeds which sprout further, grow into a plant and then they grow into a tree bringing flowers and fruits as uh, Shurabindu's um, own journey or rather, let me put it like that, as the divine within him began to manifest and the instrument became more and more perfect. So, part one is um, very early. This is written in England, 1890. Young lad, youth, youthful Krishna of 18. And this is an amazing play. It's a play he has written. I think yesterday I touched briefly upon one. The first is the sole motive of man's existence. Let me just, you know, read a little passage from there. It's beautiful. So this is also a little play where he speaks of the sole motive of man's existence and... Um, They are different characters. So one of them is, it goes into different um, layers, but paucity of time. But just to understand the, uh, the way Shurabindo's mind, how beautifully he is uh, you know, revealing us the subtle secrets. Arima smiled and went on. They lost the secret of love too. This is the very first play, by the way. Short, incomplete. They lost the secret of love too and found in its place the gorgeous phantasm of chivalry. So one of them says, Yes, I maintain that love is only a form of sin. Now imagine if somebody quotes this under Shurabindu's name. <laughs> this is one of the character and not the main one. The second person says, Yes, they recognize marriage. 
And the third person says, they raise a monument over the corpse of love. So marriage is a corpse raised over the monument, monument raised over the corpse of love. She who could best tell us what love is, sits silent, said Helen Woodward, looking at Ella. So at the end, you see always in a play, you will see that the master word comes toward the end. So everybody says, she's the one, she's sitting silent, she knows most. Let us ask her what she means. So what does Ella say? And with that, we have no further dialogues. And though the play is incomplete, but remember the title of the play is The Sole Motive of Man's Existence. She who could best tell us what love is, sits silent. So what does Ella reply? It is the sole motive of man's existence. This Shubhendrat 18 replied Ella. And then the play, three, four, there, there are no further dialogues. And then the plays remained incomplete. A lot of passages, plays have remained incomplete because uh, Shubhendra was moving, moving so fast from one frontier to another. And then comes another, which is the Harmony of Virtue, running into nearly 70 pages. Amazing play. So we have different characters here. Kesha, Broom, Wilson and all of them are sitting in a drawing room lazily. And you know, it's not an idyllic state. Somebody is you know, with a cigar in hand and somebody is sitting quietly. And they are discussing with each other. Casual talk. But what kind of talk? So I'll just read out two passages from there. Where Shubindo picks up the... Uh, through the main character who is uh, Keshav. So he speaks of evolution and perfection. So this is something which we won't find even in later writings. Often we speak about evolution and we talk about all the details. But look at 18 what Shurabindu writes. Evolution does not eliminate but perfects. Key to transformation. One sentence. Evolution does not eliminate but perfects. Much later even in Savitri this thought will recur. That our smallest parts have room for deepest needs. And when mother was asked that what will the super mind eliminate? She said why should it eliminate? Nothing. It will put everything in its right place and transform everything. This idea of eliminate, eliminate has led people to this otherworldly sannyasa. Nobody really grappled with the challenge and the difficulty called life. Hence we lost that evolutionary impetus in the race and considered only on the soul evolution. Whereas outer nature, thought, everything remained crude, unrefined, unregenerate even. So evolution does not eliminate but perfects. And then he gives example. Look at the example. The cruelty that blossoms out in the tiger has its seeds deep down in the nature of man and if it is minimized in one generation will expand in another. Nor is it possible for man to eradicate cruelty without pulling up in the same moment the bleeding roots of his own being. Much later he will explain this in one of his aphorisms. You want to eliminate cruelty, then eliminate love. Very strange when you read. You want to eliminate death, then eliminate life. It's one of those paradoxes. Why? Because this is the challenge given to man. Now look at what happened in Taliban, in Afghanistan. 20 years down the line, everybody remained exactly how human nature operates. Everything is fine. No, some person had a great idea, let us all withdraw, it's whatever be the reasons. And they came back, came back as ferocious as worse as before. It didn't change anything. While the world sits and watches by. Again, because whereas if you will go back to our ancient scriptures, how cruelty can be changed. And the classic example which I often find is when Bhima kills Dusashana. If you don't know the context, just see the scene. It's extremely cruel. His chest is being broken, blood is being taken. Bhima drinks the blood, takes it in his hands to Draupadi. 
says, I have brought for you, for your hairs, breeding your hairs. He picks up one arm, picks up another arm. It's all described. It's, if you look at it, just in that slot, it is brutal. But if you see it in the context, it's divine. There is in it a strange divinity which one sees through it. So, yet the brute ferocity that in the tiger is graceful and just and artistic. Look at the perfection. Is in the man savage and crude and inharmonious and must be cultured and refined. Tiger suddenly leaps from behind and leaps upon a deer and finishes it. Man, if he does that, he is brute. But what does a man do? In ancient times, see in the war, you can't fight with somebody who is not uh, equal to you. You can't fight when there is no Shastra. You can't fight when, you know, somebody is in a state of coma. You can't just go and kill the person. You have to challenge. And even today, military has this code. Terrorists don't have it. What is the code? It is supposed to challenge. So this is the code of the Kshatriya. So it evolves into the Kshatriya. The truly noble Aryan fighter. In the tiger, it is proud, leap, finish, devour for the sake of the belly. But here the person is ready to lay the life. So this is what is the evolution of an impulse which is cruel. Fits as gracefully and harmlessly into the perfect character until it becomes a virtue. So cruelty becomes a virtue in the Kshatriya until it and fits as gracefully and harmlessly into the perfect character as its twin brother, physical courage and physical love, its remote relative. Just imagine what a profound, this is 18 year old, I mean... <laughs> And then another one from the same um, same play. We have expanded our description of virtue as the evolution of the inborn qualities native to our personality by throwing in the epithet perfect and have interpreted the full flavor of the epithet in words to the effect that qualities in their evolved perfection must be harmonious one with another and have a beautiful form or expression. So this he describes through a flower. You know that there are some flowers where um, the smell is too strong. So actually he gives us even the secret of perfume. So he says, take the example of perfume. And he actually quotes instances of what kind of perfume of a flower. He says, it should not be so subdued that you have to go very near and you can't smell it. It should not be so loud that it is announcing itself. So just the right amount in everything, just the exact measure and proportion. So that creates the sense of beauty. So he, he gives this example as one of the things in the right measure and everything in a harmonious balance. So that's why in, later on in Perseus, the delivery, he will say, strength, love and wisdom, they are the triumvirate of manhood. Just uh, having intellectual knowledge and you know a card or a brute strength, that is not manhood. Wisdom, strength and love, that is the time rate. And you see how it expands into Savitri, who will be the new being? Prophet and lover and communicant and king. See the whole thing, in synthesis of yoga, he will say that the Radra aspect and the Swami aspect must be harmonized and balanced. Normally, we develop one quality by suppressing another. So, when we develop kindness as a virtue, we suppress justice. Justice is also a virtue. When we develop courage, we often suppress prudence. Prudence is also a virtue. How to harmonize these things? So, that's what he is revealing to us. And a beautiful color or revelation of the soul. Ah, there it is. And a beautiful perfume or justly attempered manner and must subdue all three into a just and appropriate harmony. We understand this instinctively. See, have you ever noticed that when there are two kinds of people, one who are very casual, uh, okay, hi, hello, that's okay. Another who are namasteji and it, the moment you see, you feel this is, uh, <laughs> this is not real. Isn't it? 
वन इज आर्टिफिशियल बाइट्स एक्सेसिवनेस द अदर इज आर्टिफिशियल बाइट्स लाइक वट द पर्सन मे बी फीलिंग वेरी गुड इन द हार्ट बट इट्स नॉट एक्सप्रेसिंग एट ऑल सो दिस वर्च्यू देन देर इज पार्ट टू विश आई मीन आई कुड गो ऑन जस्ट दिस प्लेज एनफ फॉर मे बी डेज बट सो द सेकेंड वन इज ऑन लिटरेचर वेयर ही स्पीक्स अबाउट बंकिम चंद्र चैटर्जी एंड एज वी नो ही एट रिगार्डेड बंकिम चंद्र चैटर्जी एज ए सीयर so we have a strange idea about seer seer is somebody sitting in a cave invariably all the thanks to our movies and god knows what all the seers have to wear gherua vastra i don't know what is seer who got to do with this and then they have to have a dadi dadi i understand old days probably there were no barbers but why portray seers like that but this is how they are portrayed shobindra speaks of seer and he distinguishes the difference between seer and a yogi a person may be a yogi not a seer a person may be a seer and not a yogi and this was in context with you know uh, one of the great um, sages who would initiate people with the mantra and shobindra said but he doesn't have the mantra how can he give the mantra i am not going to take the name so then he was asked what do you mean by that he said mantra must spring up from within and a person who can see who receives a mass of inspiration seers were very passionate they were extremely open to this influx of light which they expressed through speech written or spoken and that was the seer at one place he even describes seer maybe we can when it comes maybe i'll read it i'm not sure ha huh. the rishi is different from the saint have you ever uh, thought about this his life may not have been distinguished by superior holiness saintly man <laughs> mother says at one place i'm not a saint i'm not a saint Just imagine what it means, saint, holy person. So seer is not distinguished by superior holiness, nor is character by an ideal beauty. He is not great by what he was himself, but what by what he has expressed, and that's what he reveals about the in the life of uh, Rishi Bankim Chand. And it must be original. That should you know. He must be open. A great and vivifying message had to be given to a nation or to humanity. and god has chosen this mouth on which to shape the words of the message that is the seer and in that sense rishi bankim chandra is a seer and what is the mantra he gave bande matram so the seer and then he of course describes his life this whole life so beautifully shobindra is described as you know as as being a seer then there is of course on poetry and literature and then another person whom shobindo has given great importance i suspect i may be wrong but i suspect he himself was that in one of his past lives and that is kalidas so we see that he describes these three phases of development in uh, indian thought valmiki vyas and kalidas and he goes on to say even if all the rest were taken away these three are enough just imagine he says even if all the rest is taken away probably ha valmiki vyas and kalidas are the essence of the history of ancient india if all else were lost they would still be its soul and sufficient cultural history that is the power and of course speaks of valmiki as laying down the moral fiber of india because you know the stories about rama and he compares this great detail so much so that when he writes on vyasa uh vyas rishi so he says that where how can you make out which portions are interposed because with regard to mahabharata there is uh, this controversy that you know there are many passages which have been brought in shlokas brought in later he says you can make out their style is so different valmiki is a extremely sensuous poet he starts by seeing a cronch pakshi dying while making love and his heart is moved and from then the first verse is born <laughs> and ramayana is the story of primarily of love i mean it's rama's love for sita and sita's love for rama rama abandons the kingdom out of love for you know 
that ideal which he holds to. He marches on to Lanka because he loves Sita, takes that challenge of life. And Sita accepts the banishment because of her love for Rama. I mean, it's an amazing story of love. And in that story, you can see that image of separation eventually, while the two are so close. So he is an extremely, and Valmiki's images are like that. Vyasa's images, you can see that here is a uh, master poet whose uh, words are terse, like <laughs> they, they cut you, they are sharp, powerful. So Vyasa written like that. And Shubhinda says you can take out from here and there and you can see that this is not written originally. That was the in-depth study that he had done. So he says, there are three periods of history. One is of course the moral, the second is intellectual. So there is a spiritual component always there in Indian thought. But in Mahabharata you see the intellectual now which has come beyond just the moral. So the characters debate. Every character thinks he is right. And then there is, of course, final word which Sri Krishna speaks about and explains in the Gita. That is the crux of uh, all our actions. And, uh, and also it is action-oriented. And Kalidas is, of course, uh, moral, intellectual and material and sensuous life. When reads Kalidas, it's Shringaras to its utmost. And Shubhinda was so deeply... Uh, happy about his readings I won't use the word impressed but uh, he gave a lot of importance to Vikram Urvashi and uh, so much so that later on he wrote uh, Vikram Urvashi which one of his masterpieces of long poetry and that's written by Kalidas originally and it's the story of the hero and the nymph so there's this king Pururavas and um, the nymph is Urvashi and he saves her from a demon Keshi and she falls in love because he's a hero. You know, he has saved her life. And they decide to get married. Uh, but Indra is not happy. How can he? The most beautiful maiden of Indra's kingdom is getting wedded to a mere mortal. <laughs> so Indra lays down condition 1, 2, 3, 4. And uh, King Puravaz is quite maddened by love. He says, sign, take my signature, blank checks. I just want to <laughs> marry her. So, one of the conditions is you will never see her undressed when there is uh, under any condition. So, once Indra plays the trick and this lightning and thunder and the rams are being stolen, the story goes uh, to cut the story short and he gets up and that's the moment he sees her and she has to go back to heaven. Now, somebody would normally see in this nothing but sensuous poetry, romance. But it is an unfulfilled love where, wherein they go back. The story ends so tragic. I mean, it looks like a happy ending. But Shurabindu calls it a tragedy for the earth with implications right down the line of Mahabharata. So at the end, when Urvashi goes back, Pururavaz is full of sorrow. He says, I want to go with her. And the Divine Mother that time comes to his vision and says, you really want to go? He says, yes. He says, you deserve it because you have fought the Devasur Sangram and you are the person who else can deserve to be eternally in the heavens beyond. Go and be with Urvashi. Now she has sanctioned. He goes and there is a description where they are coming and all the heavens, they are celebrating. Today is the uh, ultimate day where a mortal and a celestial being, they are getting married. Not on earth, but in heaven. So it's something very special. But the story ends, half tragic note, where Shubhinda brings out this element. And earth wheeled, abandoned in the globe. Because Pururavas had that might. So he had to make a choice. That's why in Savitri, when we take it in this sense, we understand that Savitri, love and death, another story from Mahabharata, and of course Vikram Orvasi, they follow a trilogy. In Savitri, this is a complete conquest. So, Savitri demands my love should be back, but here upon earth. Not in some heaven beyond, because we have to do a work together. So, Shubhinda gave a great emphasis to uh, Vikram Orvashi. So, he speaks about the play, he speaks about the characters and the spirit of times. And he has, as I said, translated portions. He has even uh, finally written a poem on Vikram Orvashi and Kalidas... Um, he regarded as one of the greatest vibhutis of all times. I'm not sure how many of us have really read even a little bit about him. Um, even the other poem of Kalidas play, Birth of the War God, Shubhinda had started, Kumar Sambhava. Uh, 
and he started but he did not complete it then there are notes on the mahabharata amazing running almost into 75 pages but most of them remain incomplete because of uh, you know the reasons then part 3 is on education where a must read is addressed at the baroda college social gathering and then the brain of india here shubindu gives the key you know when we read the ancient times and we remember has it ever struck to us how without the written manuscript how they preserved the vedas no other country could do it this is a fact it's only when the papyrus came and then they could write and things how did they preserve the vedas even before the by smriti so what kind of people they were who could remember like this what was the secret so that's where he says the secret was laying down the foundation in early life through the practice of brahmacharya so and then he explains what really is brahmacharya brahmacharya is not just the way we understand withholding the sexual impulse not just that it's about sublimating it directing it and how it gets transmuted the seed which is ordinarily lost through the sexual process is conserved and turns into rithas then tejas that heat inside the system then ojas and then vidyut and then find the spiritual energy and then finally it becomes um the virias so see in india when the words were used the fall of virya virya fall was not just a physical act but from that height when it fell and came down and that's why the word veer who was the veer the veer was one who had practiced this brahmacharya to an extent that he could draw spiritual strength it was not just physical strength and therefore he was not afraid this what we see in baji prabhu this what we see in you know abhimanyu's life they're not afraid of death why because it was veerious they knew that the body is perishable but uh, the soul is immortal so that was the whole principle and this is what he says that this is how the brain of india has to develop and the foundation has to be laid during early educative period which of course is a big uh, uh, thought which people must give and then he describes system of national education why it is necessary and uh, the three famous principle till today we speak about it uh, and not practice it the first is that nothing can be taught <laughs> so beautiful nothing can be taught you can bring out only that which is inside <laughs> educe to bring out educate that's how the word goes educe to bring out and bring out shobindo adds and put it to the best and noblest use what you bring out so that's education and the first principle is nothing can be taught so what is the teacher teacher is uh, you know his role is to help bring out from the child what is already held back within so his role is like from a seed what is held inside the seed is the tree so he is to help in the seed bringing out the tree and there he must know what kind of soil how much water sunshine there he must know because each seed is different and needs a different treatment so there is the second principle which comes is that you must go from the near to the far if you want to beat a child and make him turn into an adult as some people try it's just impossible the child has to go through the phases he will be naughty he will you know go through his own games playfulness otherwise that tambola thing will come men are naughty at 40 it's not a good thing no is 14 you be naughty no naughtiness in a krishna sense happy sense is different thing but this there is an age for everything and you know you they go through that phase so where they are where their understanding is take from there and then take step by step and by step not like a classical class that okay today we will talk about vedanta so vedanta is about you know eko ham bahushyami now that boy doesn't know even the concept of one so start from one what are the things which are one and how they become many i remember one very uh, there was one dr venkat raman here a very fine person one of the most brilliant um, scientist i have seen mathematician he got the indian science academy awards but always lived very humbly um, simply was in golconda so he used to teach mathematics 
So his children would say, one of the classes which he would take is like this. What is this line he'll draw? This is straight line. He'll draw an angle. Same line is angle like this. So people are saying, now what is this? This is round. From the same line, he is showing ki how the same thing becomes all these different shapes. And then he rubs them off. One of the students was saying, what an experience it was. At the end he says, now you understand how all is one? Without uttering a sloka from... Uh, one has become so many forms. So there is a way of uh, education, so near to the far. And the third principle we all know is that this idea of hammering into a child what he should become, what he should not become. Srivindu says is a very brute thing to do because each child brings something unique and he is basically <coughs> revealing to us the truth of the Gita, Sudharma. And classic example, many examples with mothers, uh, this thing, somebody would go and tell mother, uh, this child uh, is not studying in the school. So mother would scold the teacher. So, the teacher doesn't know what's the problem. Okay, send the child to me. Uh, Fifteen-year-old child. So, chill, teachers are saying that uh, you you are not studying in the school. Yes, mother, I don't find it interesting. So, what do you find interesting? Mother, I want to do photography. Fine. Do photography. We all know that child. <laughs> so beautifully she blossomed. Sadharma. Not like you have to conventionally do this. No, no, no. Studying is a good thing. If you don't do graduation, you won't get a job. Let the sudharma emerge. It's not about, you know, this utilitarian thing that, you know, you must get a job, you must get this, all this must go. Then we have a very interesting part for is about art and he reveals that why in modern times, one of the reasons why we have degraded is because there is stress on utilitarianism. Aesthetics has taken a back seat. So there is no refinement. Everything is seen from the point of view of utility. But there is a value of beauty. And he speaks about that. And part 5 is very fascinating. It's about conversations of the dead. Those who have died and... Um, Some of the places which I have taken out, I'm, <laughs> I don't feel like proceeding there. <laughs> okay, this I'll read anyways later. But one of his thoughts which just struck me. Was life always so trivial? Always so vulgar? This from the art. So very... Always so loveless, pale and awkward? Mark what he's saying further. Was life always so trivial, always so vulgar, always so loveless, pale and awkward as the Europeans have made it? <laughs> and then sense of humor, perfect sense of humor. This well-appointed comfort oppresses me. Sir, you will get a koti, banglasi, bourgeois and samurai. Koti, bangla, cash, car. You should be a happy man. He says it oppresses me. It stifles me. The perfection of machinery will not allow the soul to remember that it is not itself a machine. That's what has happened. Because everything is a machine. Oh soul, it is part of the pineal gland. It is a machine. And that's why Shubindu much later would say in an aphorism, I am waiting for Europe to perfect its machinery and organization, then a child shall destroy it. Who is that child? The soul, which is, you know, which takes a back seat. So, uh, this about art and conversation of the dead. One of the greatest is uh, where he speaks about Shivaji and Jai Singh. Both are dead and they are there in the heaven. They are very fascinating conversations, especially if you know the background, they so interesting. So, Jai Singh says, I did the right thing. You were doing the wrong thing. You were trying to do an impossible thing to build a, you know, defeat the Mughals and, uh, you know, build an empire. And I was siding with whoever, you know, I belonged, I had a treaty. So I was just being honest and truthful too. So he puts that point that way. He doesn't come like, a, you know, totally a man who completely, 
Well, Shivaji says, well, I understand your point, but I lived what Bhavani planted into me. It's a higher thought he brings in. And at the end, he says, but what did you achieve? Because at the end, the paradoxes that Shivaji extended his empire beyond limits, remained undefeated. At the same time, Aurangzeb remained undefeated finally. I mean, Shivaji died and Aurangzeb is said to have remarked that I lost an enemy who was worth fighting. That was, And after that, the Mughal empire went away. Because Shivaji had fired it with so much energy. He died at a pretty young age. I, I don't remember now, maybe early 50s or something. But what an achievement, extending. So he says, well, I built an empire which none was able to demolish it. So I destroyed an empire which they could not build again. Because they are dead now. So Shivaji can see, see, I destroyed an empire which could never be built again. And I built an empire which has not yet been demolished. In fact, it would eventually expand into a whole, uh, I mean, with the coming of British and all these people. Then, of course, from there you get into Chandanagar manuscripts which are amazing. If somebody wants to read about Hatha Yoga, Raj Yoga, he speaks about yoga as an evolutionary perspective that for each age of mankind there is a yoga. So when human beings are more physical, gross than heart yoga because we understand the body. As we become a little more uh, mental than Raj Yoga because you know we understand the mind, mind control, all this. He speaks about the siddhis that we get from Hatha Yoga. He speaks about the dangers. One of the dangers that he speaks of Hatha Yoga actually you can see and people don't understand he says one of the dangers of Hatha Yoga is an excessive egoism. Which uh, at least I know of some yogis of the past, extremely egoistic. Because Hatha Yoga creates that kind of, you don't work upon the ego self. So, and powers, it can give all this. He is the confirms, anima, lagima, garima, mahima, all this can come through. Asta Siddhis, through the practice of pranayam. All this he reveals there, that this, these are two essays in just about maybe running through five, six pages, easy to read. But nowhere one will get such a comprehensive picture. In synthesis he speaks about Raj Yoga, but there the takeoff plane is very, very high. But here you will see it at our level, like you know, ground level. Okay, what is Raj Yoga? What is this practice? What is Samadhi? What happens through Raj Yoga, the Siddhis that come, Vyapti, Prakamya, all these things, you know, uh, he speaks about. And what are the dangers again of Raj Yoga? It can shut us into a limited formation of spiritual consciousness and we don't go beyond. And then of course the Trimarg etc. which he doesn't speak of here but later on. And then of course uh, there are some beautiful passing thoughts. Uh, he speaks about historical impressions about the French Revolution which uh, we all know that Shurabindu was active in the French Revolution as a tremendous force behind it. But the human vessel who was chosen primarily to um, buy Shurabindu uh, who became a vibhuti of the French Revolution was Danton. And uh, it is said that... Um, because Danton was guillotine, sometimes this Samritha's statement that, you know, sometimes Shabindu would put his hand on the neck a little bit like this. And when he asked him, he says, still the guillotine impression is carried. And he was the only person actually who till the end stood by the ideal. Who was the comrade? Robespierre, most likely Nalnida. Who ultimately, you know, Kind of, not change sides, but, you know, moderated it. Napoleon, about whom he writes that I saw the arm of God striding through Europe. He was a vibhuti of Kali. And when, as long as he could do, as long as, you know, he was with, um, in fact, Swami Vivekananda says that uh, because of his, um, his Josephine, his partner, that he had the strength. The day he left her completely, he collapsed. And how egoism got into him. And the day he felt, I am France, then Kali slayed him. That you are just an instrument. So these are some very interesting impressions, things seen in symbol. Part 7, 
are very beautiful letters from abroad. This is a style of writing which Shobindra has adopted where he is writing an imaginary letter as if he is writing from abroad uh, to somebody who is abroad. So here he writes, Friend and brother, it's an imaginary letter, okay, not a real letter. So he writes, Friend and brother, I am as yet among the unregenerate. That's how, you know, people say, Are, they don't know how to say it. First thing we learn in convent schools is manners. What are manners? How to hold the fork and spoon and which side you should keep the butter knife. What has it got to do with anything in India? And I have seen people eat rice with fork. That is never meant for the Indian food. And paratha. Put a fork here. Have you seen it? It looks so absurd. And with So I was very happily surprised when I in London, Harrow's, which is primarily a, you know Indian community. So I saw just um, straying around and I saw <laughs> South Indian restaurant. So I went inside. So there, the first thing that I struck me, it's there on the um, door itself, glass door. And I said, Yaha ja ke khana hai. So that thing was ki, 10 benefits of eating with hand. <laughs> I said, this is it. 10 benefits of eating with hand. Okay, clean the hands subtly. Chances are much better that you will clean your hands better than cleaning the fork because somebody else is cleaning it for you. <laughs> you don't know how clean it is. You don't know how many people have used it. So there is a transaction of consciousness. Now I am not saying that please change your habits. But I am just saying hand is yours. For God's sake. <laughs> somebody has eaten with the same fork and uh, you know Indians are very sens- super sensitive to these occult aspects. And now, you know, it's served and you are eating it. Have you ever thought like that? <laughs> Try, it will be very difficult to eat with that. <laughs> we have grown up with this sensitivity, even the plates, using anybody's and everybody's plates, it is not superstition. There is, behind it is science. So, Shobinda says that, well, you call me unregenerate, I am an unregenerate. <laughs> Instead of my eccentric notions of life, Changing under the pressure of victorious European enlightenment, mark the satire. They seem to harden and fix their hold. Remember when Swami Vivekananda was asked, now that you have gone to the West and seen its glitter and glamour, what do you think about India? He said, before I had gone there, I loved India and, you know, worshipped her. But after I have come back, even the dust of India is sacred to my I have seen it all. This is exactly what Shirvinda says, who not only went there, who lived there and was very well conversant. Here I am in Paris, as I said, it's an imaginary um, letter, but for a yogi, as he says in one of his poems, Cosmic Man, London and Paris and Tokyo, my spirits seeing are. The mother was asked, he says, you know, I have gone to these planets, gone to all the regions of Himalayas. So, he says, here I am in Paris, the center of civilization. And I am still the same dark-skinned barbarian you knew. (laughs) Mother describes Paris, she says, it's so difficult because a city like Paris is filled with all desires. This is how she saw Paris. And we want to have an evening in Paris. She said that, that you know, in one of her talks, and then there is a prayer. She says, I lament the life of the cities where the civilization is plunged into so much darkness because life of a city revolves around money. If you really look at how cities developed, villages didn't develop like that. Cities developed around money and the greed for money. And the moment you enter, the whole atmosphere is like that. So he says, now, there is nothing against Paris. If ever I have to go, visa... Issues. (laughs) Issues. <laughs> Not that. <laughs> oh, you spoke about Paris. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I was going for America the no, first time, so they asked me, why do you want to go to America? I said, I don't want to go to America. My friend has called me. <laughs> why has he called you to give a talk? On what? Evolution. What will you speak? I said, you want to hear the whole content? <laughs> no, no, no. It's okay. <laughs> so, there is this idea that people are interested. Nobody is interested. 
One is India's, you know, very sand is so beautiful and sacred. So here he says, here I am in Paris, the center of civilization, and I am still the same dark-skinned barbarian you knew. Neither the complexion of my face. Now here there is a very subtle tunge that, you know, where man is judged by the complexion of his face. So he says, neither the complexion of my face nor the complexion of my thoughts is improved. So what does he say? I still believe in God and Vedanta. Look at the power. In India... I still believe in God and Vedanta. In India, it means I believe in India and impossibilities. Man is still to my eyes divine and not an animal. I believe in the soul and am afflicted with the imagination that it has a past and a future. The soul. That it neither came ready-made into the world out of the mother's womb, nor will disintegrate at the end, whether on the pyre or in the coffin. That our first stage is an embryo, and our last, worms or ashes, is a creed I hold to be still unproved. What power are these words, you know? Still unproved and unprovable. I believe that nothing in the world is made, but everything grows. The secret of life on earth. We want ready-made things because we are used to McDonald's. But you know, old time, one of the beauty of the cooking, home cooking is what? Is this, this is a preparation involved, this is a joy. Ready-made food. It never carries that appeal. So it, it grows everything which is a fact of life on earth. That body cannot create soul and that a mass of cells is not Buddha or Napoleon. Later on he would write amazing poetry on that. Uh, again a satirical poetry that a thyroid meditating almost nude under the bow tree got up and was enlightened. <laughs> so he speaks about this later on because this is what his whole life has been. And if you ask for my ground of belief I shall still refuse to base it on the logical reason which can only argue and cannot see and I shall give the answer of the visionary, the victim of hallucinations. They are regarded as victim of hallucinations. He will say that I will give the answer of the visionary. If you ask me what is your basis, I will not go by logical reason. But I will give the answer that I have seen my soul. And walked and talked face to face with my creator. What writing is this? <laughs> How can we miss this? This power. Part 9 is Bankim Tilak Dayanand, where he describes these three wonderful figures. Tilak, of course, was his contemporary. Dayanand was someone who actually the revival of the Vedas in a way started with him. Though he gave a very uh, intellectual understanding. And, but whatever it was, at least there was some beginning of a true understanding of the Vedas. Not based on just a, you know, blind ritualistic practice. Of course, Shurabindu took it to what heights, that's a different thing. But that's where we see the, one of the end. The other day I was sharing a story of Dhyanand, what a compassionate person. He was poisoned and the cook was a Muslim. So, you know, he, uh, he tells the cook when he comes to know, he says, you run away from here. They'll kill you. This compassion. The founder of Arisamaj and a very strong man, a believer in Brahmacharya and to that extent that, uh, you know, it is said that a jeep could not go further because he held it by his hand. That kind of a strength, intellectual strength, moral strength, physical strength. But of course, spiritual strength was still awaiting its hour. And then there are some very interesting, so this part nine and then there is appendix, two appendix, appendices, Appendix 1 is Baroda's speeches and report. The funny aside to this is that the Maharaja would sometimes call him and ask him to write something on his behalf or some point. So Shubhindu would say, I'll write the speech. So when he would read it, it doesn't look like. If I say it, nobody will believe it. So Shubhindu said humorously, anyways nobody will believe because all Maharajas get their speech written. So anyways nobody will believe. So you might have, because Shubhindu wanted to release those ideas in the atmosphere. He knew it. 
So he said, anyways, nobody will believe it. So they were, they have gone by the name of Maharaja Baruda. But actually, Shubhendra had written those speeches and when we read them about the revival of industry, medical department, I read it when, uh, you know, after joining it, I was so surprised what details, casualties during a time of epidemic, how to handle it. The way he has described, we are still, you know, far behind all that. So, first appendix is that and appendix 2 is premises on astrology. I just missed one which is part 8 after the epistles from abroad which is uh, reviews. So, he had reviewed some of the books and like Suprabhat, hymn to the goddess, hymns to the goddess, about astrology, Sanskrit research, feast of youth, Shama, all these he had you know, reviewed. So, uh, let me close with uh, this little passage. Swami Vivekananda spoke once of two types of Hinduism. Today is uh, a Hindu festival, so I thought I must you know, read a little bit about it. Uh, he said one is the kitchen spirituality and the other is the real Hinduism. So Shivindu explains that so beautifully. This is also part of early cultural writings. There are two Hinduisms. One which takes its stand on the kitchen and seeks its paradise by cleansing the body. Another which seeks God. Not through the cooking pot and the social convention, but in the soul. The latter is also Hinduism and it is a good deal older and more enduring than the other. The Hinduism of the soul. It is the Hinduism of Bhishma and Sri Krishna. Of Shankara and Chaitanya. The Hinduism which exceeds Hindustan. So there is a very subtle hint in that. When Hinduism became like, you know, India, Bharat became Hindustan. So mixture, then to preserve the culture, people adopted certain attitude. Was from of old and will be forever because it grows eternally through the aeons. So then it distinguishes beautifully. Its watchword is not Kriya, but Karma. So beautiful it is, self-explanatory. Not Shastra, but Jnanam. Not Achar, but Bhakti. So Karma, Jnana, Bhakti. Not Kriya, Shastra, Achar. Yet it accepts Kriya, Shastra and Achar not as ends to be followed for their own sake, but a means to perfect Karma, Jnana, and bhakti. Kriya in the dictionary means every practice which helps the gaining of higher knowledge, such as the mastering of the breath, the repetition of the mantra, the habitual use of the name, the daily meditation on the idea. By Shastra it means the knowledge which regulates karma, which fixes kartavyam, the eternal wisdom, ah, Then and it recognizes two sources of that knowledge, the eternal wisdom as distinct from the temporary injunctions in our ancient books and the book that is written by God in the human heart. The eternal and aparushe effortless streaming of knowledge is aparushe. Parushe is when you have to apply effort. What is the meaning of this word? Let me try to understand. That is knowledge which is gained by effort, scholarly wisdom. A parusha is without effort. Effortlessly it comes through an intuitive seeing. By achar it understands all moral discipline by which the heart is purified and made a fit vessel for divine love. There are certain kriyas, certain rules of shastra, certain details of achar which are for all time of perpetual application. There are others which are temporary, changing with the variation of desh, kal, patra, time, place and the needs of humanity. Among the temporary laws, the cooking pot and the lustration had their place, but they are not for all, not forever. So, Kshatriya was meant to eat what will give him that strength. It was not like for everybody the same injunction applies, and not forever. It was a time of calamity, of contraction under external pressure, that Hinduism fled from the inner temple and hid itself in the kitchen. The higher and truer Hinduism is also of two kinds, sectarian and unsectarian. Disruptive and synthetic, that which binds itself up in the aspect 
and that which seeks the all. So this is how Shubhendu reveals to us one after another. It's uh, impossible. It, this book runs into nearly how many? Eight hundred some pages, seven sixty pages. Worth reading every page of it. This is what I would say. See, one and you will see all the glimpses of uh, later on. Shubhendu has developed these into a full magnificent tree. These are the early sprouts of a revolutionary, a yogi, a poet, a author of the highest literature who would exceed Vyas, Valmiki and Kalidas, at least in my view. Thank you.